Hello and welcome to Zero Today. I am your humble host, Dr. Lorenzo Neal, hailing from Cajun Land, USA, here to present you with seeds of wisdom, insight, empowerment, and liberation. We are promoting a knowledge that is engaging and transforming, and we are here to empower you, our listeners, to knowing and impacting the world around us. And as always, you're welcome to join us on this illuminating journey. If you're listening, this is a pre-recorded uh, podcast, so you can feel free to hit us up on social media, all our social media. We are on Facebook, Zero Network there, on Twitter, at Zero Radio, my personal handle, at Lorenzo T. Neal. And you can hit us up there, and we'll be glad to respond to any inquiries, questions, dialogues you may have. And uh, we just thank you for tuning in with us today. And we're glad that you are sponsoring us. Listen, want to invite you to help us in this illuminating journey also by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Lorenzo T. Neal. You can support there always. We appreciate what you do. Also, you can support us with PayPal me, Lorenzo Neal, uh, for PayPal. We appreciate you so much for all that you uh that you do to help us with this Zero Today radio show. We're glad to be able to do all that we do with your help. Thank you so much. So today's topic we're going to be getting into is encountering guilt and shame. And um, there are a few reasons why I'm talking about this subject. I believe as pastor, as a pastor, um, we don't adequately or sufficiently deal with this this uh, issue of guilt and shame in the church from a positive perspective. We don't do enough positive uh, reinforcement regarding this issue, uh, this topic. So uh, more than likely, this will be a two-part topic, two-part series on guilt and shame. Um, and we will, pre- we will be presenting it from both a uh, biblical perspective as well as a psychological and uh, therapeutic perspective. A counseling perspective we we want to be as well-rounded and holistic as we possibly can be with this topic we'll be preaching some things and I know there's a lot of um, uh, probably false information definitely definitely wrong interpretations when it comes to scriptures regarding this and um, we want to set the we want to help clear the air and help empower you, our listeners, regarding this particular subject. As uh, far as reference, we will be referring to a book that you can get that is called Encountering Guilt and Shame. It is a part of the pastoral counseling series um, by Baker Book. and uh, You can pick that up um, as a reference if you would like. You can also contact us at PastorLorenzoNeal at gmail.com for any other questions if you want to get more information about that. But anyway, let's jump right into today's broadcast. Since I've been a pastor, there have been a number of people who have approached me um, privately regarding issues that they have that they feel both ashamed and guilty uh, about. And... You know, it's typical. Every last one of us experiences both of those. We experience shame or we experience guilt. Uh, it's a part of a human experience, and we cannot deny that. Now, 
what I want to do is not quantify the experiences. I don't want to say how how often you should feel bad, how often you should feel shame, how often you should feel guilty. And if you feel guilt or shame more frequently than others, then that means something else. I know I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to quantify that. What I intend to do is help understand, help uh, you, the listener, understand uh, the experience of both guilt and shame to put it in the context of um, your existential life and put it in context both in the biblical sense as well as your natural human experience because I think I did I have done a great injustice for a long time as a young preacher and even into you know as I matured I, I was still holding this you know this this sense of shame and guilt over people's head to make them a better Christian to make them a better individual (laughs) and what i came to discover is just from my own personal self that that was not working it was not working it's not it wasn't working because it wasn't it wasn't um a, a, a a good strategy it wasn't working because the means of communicating it and leading to empowerment and liberation was not implemented it was not integrated into that for many years i was just preaching you know you ought to be out of sin or sinful behavior because you should feel shame for doing it. You should feel guilty for doing it. And that's how, you know, that's how I was taught. That's how a lot of preachers and a lot of Christians were taught. It was reinforced in our weekly sermons that we were here or in the Sunday school uh, conversations <laughs> that we would talk about uh, in Bible studies, in regular conversation between um, those who had spiritual beliefs. That you should feel some kind of way. And there's nothing wrong with you. You should feel some kind of way. Everyone should feel kind of some kind of way. And we reinforced it with behaviors that we got from biblical characters. Um, as far back as Abram, Ab, uh, Adam, Abraham, Jacob, and even uh, J, uh, <laughs> Judas. Uh, so we, we were... Uh, we were seeing this negative connotation of shame and guilt and using it to reinforce this this very, very um, misguided uh, perception of how those emotions and how, how those emotions of shame and guilt should empower us and liberate, excuse me, and liberate us instead of um, causing us to live in a sense of uh Fear, uh, a daily existence of I'm, I'm, I did something wrong. I should feel bad about it, and if I don't feel bad about it, something is wrong with me. Or if I do feel bad about it, God is mad at me and is eventually going to punish me. And I tell you, we have done, particularly as the church and in the black church, and very much particular within this construct of shame and guilt, we have done a horrible job, and I do mean a very horrible job of of empowering people because we've used this as a weapon we've used shame and guilt as a weapon guilt and shame as a weapon and you know what we're seeing we're seeing the effects of that now as people are living leaving uh organized christianity in droves they're leaving the church now they're not um some are becoming atheist 
and but most are not most are just saying i i would rather live in my own shame and on own guilt without feeling guilty <laughs> uh the perception of guilt placed upon me by others and um i think that's where we miss the mark and that's where we i want to address this is what i want to address i want to address the fact that we have done more harm than help when it comes to this topic of shame and guilt or guilt and shame however you want to put it uh and largely again we go back to the idea of the construct from which we gained this sense uh adam and eve in the garden of eden or we are first see the encountering of this 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 uh, the state of being of shame and guilt and we know the story very well where um eve is uh enticed by the serpent and eve is then uh, led to entice adam and they both eat of forbidden fruit and after eating of the forbidden fruit they have a knowledge that they were never uh they did not have before or a greater sense of awareness about themselves that they did not have before they were not aware that they were naked neither were they ashamed of their nakedness in uh, uh because their their cognitive realization there was no cognitive dissonance there that it didn't exist however after eating of whatever they ate partaking of whatever they partook they had a greater sense of awareness self awareness that brought about a sense of shame for their current existence their existence prior to having that experience was one of bliss they they lived in bliss adam was able to do his work naming the animals cultivating the land eve was doing whatever she was doing being his help meet and all of a sudden now they're finding themselves in a new experiential uh existence where now they realize something different about both of them um there's the attraction side I'm quite sure but there's also the side where they knew now that something was different and they perceived that difference to be shameful so what do they do according to the scriptures they uh take uh and they take leaves and cover themselves and the scripture says that God was walking through the garden in the midst of the day and all of a sudden he recognizes that they are different they are no longer um imposed within their false ideology of who they were they have a different perception of themselves that causes them to hide from him uh now I'm not getting to the theological concepts or arguments or constructs of whether God was physically walking or whether he was sensory or anything like that it was just a he was now aware that they were aware of who they were now and it it was bad for both of them <laughs> it disappointed god according to the text god was disappointed that they had a greater perception of who they were without him uh imposing it or uh per, per giving them that perception 
and they were ashamed that they had a perception and in their moment of encountering God, they were now ashamed of their new construct. Whatever that construct was, they were now feeling unworthy to be in the actual presence of God, to have a conversation with, with God, and so they hid themselves. And the word Hebrew, uh, the word hid in Hebrew has a whole lot of undertones and overtones to it. So I'll just stick with the basic uh, uh, interpretation is that they they tried to um, present themselves in a way that was still um, still good, but at the same time without the thinking of the full perception that they knew had they now had of themselves. In other words, they wanted God to believe that they were still the same. They were trying to cover up. They were trying to hide the fact that they knew more about themselves now after having eaten from the, <laughs> the forbidden fruit, whatever it was. They had a different perspective perception of themselves yet they still tried to maintain what they believe God expected of them and they were trying to hide themselves them their now newly perceived self but it was bring with that hiding came this greater sense of disappointment on themselves and to hear it reinforced by God who told you that you were naked. I didn't tell you that you were naked. I didn't present this new information to you. You were not supposed to know that. You were supposed to stay in this enlightened existence. Where all you had to do was walk with me. Talk with me. And do your job of naming my creation. And <laughs> Eve do your job of being his help me. That's all that was expected of you that's all the burden that I had placed upon you. And whatever the circumstance that the serpent had. And, and this is, I think this is where a lot of people begin to question religion. They, they get to the point of like, well, if God is omniscient, that is, if he's all-knowing, why wasn't he aware that there was a deceitful entity in the garden that was capable, that was capable of presenting new knowledge to his creation, Adam and Eve? Why wasn't he aware of this? Where was his awareness that this entity, this serpent, was um, strategically placed where he could influence the creation? And, and also begs the question, had the serpent influenced other creation, you know, other creatures that Adam had, had uh, been working alongside before he went to his main target of Eve and Adam? Um, you know, it's just something to to ponder. If God's is omniscient, why was not God aware that that was a possibility? The plausible, you know, it was plausible that his other his other creation, the serpent, could very well be a negative influence to his latter creation, humanity. And that, you know, because we can't answer that question, a lot of people just drop it and say, "Well, God." Is not real because the logical fallacy in, in this is just too great for me to believe that this all-knowing, all-powerful entity, all-present entity, uh, you know, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, could not uh, foresee such an event. 
And, you know, there's a valid argument to that for those who um, use that. But I, again, I, I, I did get off too far and I didn't intend to get off too far with that. But let's let's get back to this idea of guilt and shame. So from the initial indoctrination that we get with Adam and Eve regarding this shame and guilt, what we find is that um, whatever led to them being more self-aware, whatever led to them to be more self-aware continues to this day in the negative uh, human experience. And that same hiding exists today because we when we have exist uh, experiences that lead us to experience the emotions of guilt and shame we as a natural response to it is not a spiritual response but as a natural response we try to cover it up we try to hide we try to lessen the blow of the experience and the emotions that accompany the experience. And that that's what I want to address today. That's that's what I want to talk about today. How do we deal, confront, and allow ourselves to experience guilt and shame without it having a negative effect on our spiritual life? As well as our uh, personal interaction. So there are two, uh, three um, experiences of shame that every human being experiences. Um, inside and outside the religious connotation of that. Um, and in the book, uh, Encountering Guilt and Shame that I mentioned and I referenced earlier. The authors uh, present those three as... Moral, moral shame, uh, imposed shame, and natural shame. And the example of Adam and Eve is what I was, uh, it can be considered as natural shame. Every human experience is a natural shame, you know, where we have a greater sense of awareness that sometimes we do something wrong and um, we, we feel bad about it. And we don't necessarily know exactly how to reconcile that wrong, but we know that is inherently wrong. Uh, may not be wrong in offense against someone else, but it's there. And every human being experiences that, and you know, some to a lesser degree, some to a greater degree. Um, and sometimes it, you know, it could be something as little as, as small as not holding the door open for someone. If you want to be a gentleman, you don't. You you see a lady coming in, you don't hold the door open. You just <laughs> you just open the door. You go in and you feel a little bad afterwards for like, man, I could have held the door open for that lady. <laughs> That's just a general example of natural shame. Uh, the latter two, uh, the the other two. Um, Moral shame and imposed shame are the two that I think are the most experienced by. Um, that comes with not negative connotation, negative overtones, negative emotions. Moral shame, we is a, is a collective experience. We have moral shame because 
we know that we have done something that disconnects us from another individual. And I'm not uh, I'm not even going to put the religious context on it. I'm just going to deal with the individual uh, sense of self, individual self. We, we experience that. Um, for example, when we commit a crime against someone else, and be it uh, we tell a little white lie, or we commit a crime that in, inflicts harm against another person, we do not love our neighbor as ourself. To put the, uh, and I did. <laughs> that is the religious connotation. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We do not value our neighbor's property as we should. Or we do not value our neighbor's um, family as we should. In, or our nation's laws or uh, and such. And when we violate that, we commit, um, we, we, we bring upon ourselves a sense of moral shame. Moral shame within the construct of the law is that we as a collective human body agree that there are some things that are just outright wrong that no person should do. Murder is one of those. We we believe that no person should commit an act of, of murder. And when that act murder happens, we feel a shame, a sense of shame, not only for the person who committed the act, but for the act of it, you know, and, and the victims, but for the act itself. We feel shame that the act happened. And and to put that in a, a more contemporary light, uh, when we think of the shootings that happened in our schools and our churches and federal buildings and in our neighborhoods, um, in our communities across this country, um, we have a great sense of moral shame when it comes to this because collective would, collectively we believe no one should be harmed by gun violence we believe that you know we uh, <laughs> if we are hunters we we believe it's okay to harm uh to inflict uh pain or death on an animal if it is to you know provide nourishment for your family you know we we understand that so we can shoot to kill deer if it's going to provide uh food and, you know, that's the hunter within us. And some people maybe argue against that construct in, in the way I just presented it. But we, as a collective body, many of us, majority of us feel moral shame when a weapon is used, a gun is used to commit a, an act of crime against someone else. Even if that is the crime of suicide, gun by su or death by suicide. Um, because, again... There's this sense that no one should have the ability to take the life of anyone else, either by gun violence or by uh, by suicide or by um, stabbing or by euthanasia or by any other means, um, you know, domestic abuse or violence. We collectively believe that it is wrong and we share in a sense of shame, not just for the act. But for the but be, but because the fact that the uh, the act is available to happen, we believe it should not be happening. You know, when person commits armed robbery against another person, when a husband abuses a spouse, when parents abuse children, or when the elderly are abused in the care of someone else, or when doctors abuse abuse their privilege, or when law enforcement. In abuses their their privilege we share in the moral shame that those 
events and those experiences are happening and, and we follow up with that moral shame by protest by uh collective activism and engagement or you know advocacy however we choose to do so that that's that's how we uh deal with moral shame and then there's the imposed shame and this is a little more complicated but but we see this more frequently in um the religious context M- uh moral sh- or imposed shame is the idea that we don't live up to the expectations of ourselves or others based on what has been placed upon us it has been imposed upon us there is a moral component that is placed upon us and when we fail in uh, uh, our perception of achieving said imposition, we have this sense of imposed shame. The example would be uh, the church. When a person is converted to the Christian faith or to the Islamic faith or to um, whatever other religious faith, uh there's there's the idea that this person would adhere to an implied set of both moral and behavioral uh expectations and in many cases those are placed upon individuals without their consent because it is is implied that once you join a church once you become a a Muslim, and you join a mosque, or you attend a mosque, or you attend a synagogue, uh, that the expectation is that you will then uh, carry out a sense of uh, outward behavior uh, that will reflect your conversion experience. It's imposed upon you. So you no longer... uh, for for the Christian church, especially in the holiness tradition, you know, you don't dress like you used to. You don't act like you used to. So if you're Pentecostal apostolic, you don't wear the makeup. You don't you don't wear the short dresses or or the jeans or pants for for women in in the strict apostolic and Pentecostal churches. Or you know you you don't drink. You don't go out, you don't smoke cigarettes, in some cases you don't engage in any type of secular activity, including listening to secular music. You're not supposed to do any of that. It is imposed upon you. And if you fail in that, uh, you feel the sense of shame for failing that imposed uh, moral uh, upon you, placed upon you. And in some, in many cases, and as as it was in a long time in, in the church tradition, the people would 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 make would remind you just how bad you were, or how uh, how uh, poor your uh, choice, your behavior, or whatever it may have been externally, how poor that was, and they <laughs> use it against you. Uh, I could tell you a number of stories. Uh, for example. A young lady who is unmarried gets pregnant. And back in the day when I was a kid, <laughs> and this was even in the Baptist church, so I know it was in a lot of other churches, that if you were unmarried and pregnant as a girl, a young woman, you were brought before the church 
and made to confess that you were pregnant. And in some cases, you were, if you were in the choir, you couldn't sing in the choir. If you were in the usher, you couldn't be in the usher. And you had to sit down. Now, then <laughs> if the male, if the man, uh, the young man who impregnated you was a member of church, there was no action taken against them. It was only taken against the woman because that was a physical way that they could say, hey, this happened. We know this happened. Yeah, we got the evidence. And we're seeing that more and more uh, now, less in that in that particular uh, way, but more in the moral failings of clergy where clergy are being exposed, including myself. I've been exposed in that way, in a negative way. Um, and, and it... it and it brings about this sense of shame, like, wow, I, I could have done better. And I, I feel bad for, for not fulfilling the obligation of the moral imposition upon me. And in that sense, we do greater disjustice, injustice, when we present it that way. So those are the three um, as presented in the, in the book. And those are the three examples of uh, three three examples of shame that humans experience, whether it's inside the church or outside of the church. That is the natural shame, that is the moral shame, and that is the imposed shame. And as I stated before, for those of us who are part of the, any religious context or praxis or community, religious community, it is the the last one that I mentioned, the imposed shame. That does the greatest harm be because that is expectation that is placed upon us from someone else, um, not through our own will, but through the will of someone else. And when we fit, have a sense of failure in that imposed moral uh, engagement, then we have the shame that accompanies that. So now that I, I've talked a little bit more about and expounded on the idea of shame both in its moral natural and imposed forms um, I want to talk a little bit more about the word guilt and I, I I think within the context that most of us hear the word guilt we 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 put it within the same context and construct of the emotion of guilt and every single person has an emotion of guilt and if you've been paying attention, <laughs> it's kind of funny, uh, like these advertisers for products like ice cream, sodas, even beer, you know, alcohol. They're, they're promoting this idea that you can enjoy this product without the guilt of enjoying the product. And so <laughs> there's the, uh, the connotation or the implication that uh, there's something wrong about the product to begin with and you enjoying the product we've created it to the point where you can no longer have that sense or should not have that sense of something being wrong because you're enjoying it so and, and that's that's the emotional connotation but we forget about um the 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 original intent of the word guilt and i guess the best way to put it is within the law you know the construct of law and order and not the TV show, but just <laughs> law and order. The fact that when um, in a courtroom, if there's a jury trial or if there's uh, a judge trial, 
the only thing that a prosecutor has to do is present evidence to determine where whether a defendant is guilty or not guilty beyond a real reasonable doubt. In other words, the que- the question is, did this person commit this act? Is this person guilty of infringing upon uh, our laws, breaking our law, our collective law? And if so, does the evidence present such in a very determinate way, and not only in a very determinate way, but without any reasonable doubt that we can all agree that this person is guilty of of breaking the law? So a judge or jury will find an individual guilty or not guilty based on evidence. But um, we've re- we've taken that construct and we placed it with feelings. So I feel guilty about doing something or having something or anything to that nature. I feel guilty and we've associated the emotion of feeling guilty with the with the. Um, actual being guilty or not and uh i I probably should you know i'm going to go back and expound on this a little bit more but the reality is that we have placed um particularly within the moral construct of shame uh, because moral is a collective um what we agree or disagree on Regarding what is right, what is wrong, and, 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 you know, of course, there's some subjectivity there. But we have this idea that um, there there should be some consensus, some common ground on what is right and what is wrong for the most part. And when a person violates what is right, what is wrong, ba- based on what we all give consent to, then that person is guilty of having violated that. And we have we have those that based on our laws, both federal, state and local, as well as within the religious context, uh, the law, (laughs) the moral law of the church or the moral law of Islam, uh, the moral law of Hinduism, uh, the moral law of Judaism. We have that construct by which we can determine. As a collective body where a person has violated that and they are therefore guilty of said violation. Now, when it comes to the emotional aspect of this, the feeling part of it, well, we can feel bad all the time. We can feel guilty all the time. I feel guilty sometimes sitting on the right row that I'm supposed to. I feel I feel guilty sometimes <laughs> watching uh, a television uh, series that. It's nothing wrong with watching. I just feel guilty for watching it, enjoying it, you know, because <laughs> uh, in some people's mind, preachers aren't supposed to enjoy anything. <laughs> and, and, and so uh, there, there's, there's, there's that sense of imposed <laughs> shame that you're not supposed to enjoy life, preacher. <laughs> and uh, when you enjoy it too much, people will, will say, well, you're guilty of. Uh, of something and you know yeah or we feel guilty when in my case i'm a diabetic and i shouldn't be eating sugar but i go to the store and a butterfinger catches my eye i know i'm not supposed to have that butterfinger i purchase that butterfinger and i eat that butterfinger 
And then eventually I feel bad for eating the Butterfinger. Not because the Butterfinger wasn't good. Not because the Butterfinger wasn't packaged right. It's because I know I did something I probably should not have done that would inadvertently affect my uh, person, my health. And I will feel guilty if my blood sugar goes higher than what it should be <laughs> after enjoying that guilty pleasure. Um, and for many of us, we, uh, we don't want to feel guilty. And I, I, you know, I think that's a problem with a lot of what's happening in a lot, in the world today. A lot of us don't want to feel guilty about things. We just, um, we just don't want to feel anything. We want to do it our way. We want to be able to say, well, if uh, and and we do say this, if it if it feels good, do it as long as it's not hurting anybody else's feelings. If what I do hurts your feeling, then something is wrong with you, not with me, because I have the right to do whatever I want to do. And if I feel guilty, that's me. But if you feel guilty for me doing it, that's you. And believe me, this that happens more. <laughs> that's that's an argument a lot of people are beginning to make. And I don't know how to really address it, but I just know that it is being made more than I care to admit. And I probably made it myself without fully being aware. We've all done something that made us feel guilty afterwards. And the feeling of guilt, it again, is a natural, natural human emotion. Um, we should feel guilty um, sometimes. <laughs> it helps us. Uh, one, it helps us reconnect with uh, other individuals when we have a sense of guilt that we've done something wrong against an individual. That's fine. Intrapersonally, intra within the self, we. Uh, it's also good to, because it helps us be aware that um, sometimes we must do things properly for our own good, for our own self, for our own health. So, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a guilty pleasure is people say, well, I like to, my guilty pleasure is I like to have uh, a particular snack or I like to do a particular thing. And I don't want anyone to know that I'm doing this. Nothing is wrong with it. But I just would not. I would rather no one be aware that this is my guilty little pleasure. You know. And that's nothing wrong. However. The same. In, on the same note. When we do something that is harmful to others. You know. Uh, if our guilty pleasure is being. Uh, a sexual deviant and, and probably not the best example, but if it inflicts harm upon someone else without their consent, then that is not a guilty pleasure. <laughs> and you should feel bad because, again, you have um, you have broken the moral shame. You know, that's that's one way to put it, one way to see it. So I, I do recognize that this is a very um, complex topic and I didn't expect to get as much as uh, I really wanted to. I didn't expect to cover a lot. So we're going to do a follow-up on this and hopefully we'll be able to have a live one. Uh, I'll probably open it up for the discussion. But I do want you to ponder the idea of guilt and shame and why we experience it and, and know that it is a, it's a natural thing. It's, it's, it's nothing wrong with having those uh, emotions of guilt and shame. But uh, to know that these 
these emotions are intended to bring about positive reinforcement, not negative reinforcement. And when we have, particularly with the the imposed moral shame, the imposed shame, we you know it it it, it gives a negative reinforcement to our human experience. And and I don't want us to have a negative. Uh, human experience. We need to have positive human experiences so that we can share the positive energy, positive life, and especially the positive gospel of Jesus Christ to others who need it. So uh, we're going to do a follow-up on this, and I just want to introduce this and um, kind of break it down. And uh, if you follow me on all of my social media, we'll, you know, we'll be posting a little bit, little bits about that in the time to come. Um, and this is a short, shorter Broadcast than I usual, shorter recording than I usual do be uh, for a number of reasons, but we're just grateful to be able to do this. Now, again, as we close out this show, I want to again invite you to support us on uh, Patreon, support us by way of PayPal, PayPal me, Lorenzo Neal, capital L, capital N. Uh, you can do that. You can also visit our website and do all that you can to help us make this broadcast a successful broadcast. And uh, follow us on all the social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. We're on there also, so we appreciate it. And be looking out for another broadcast of Zero Today. Thank you so much.